As you know by now, the topic is humility. And um, if you have been here for any length of time, you know that I, I have spoken on this topic five or six times. I've written about it, which sets me up for this existential crisis in, in that um, uh, I happen to think of myself uh, as an expert on the topic of humility, which uh, I can't actually say, but I do believe, and this causes me a fair bit of angst. Uh, it leads me to wonder if I'm disqualified from saying anything about humility, if I think I'm an expert on the topic. Uh, and then I sort of cycle that, and I discover that I'm actually quite proud of my distress about that because it suggests that I'm humble. And you don't want someone who's not an expert talking about a topic, right? You want someone who is an expert. And so I sort of wrestle with all that and, and just recognize that, uh, that, that pride is, is just a very insidious uh, very invasive kind of challenge. And humility is very shy. As soon as you start to talk about it, it runs and hides. And uh, pride never leaves. You can't, it's like a bad weed. You just cannot get rid of it. It keeps sprouting up in different places. But it's a very important topic. Uh, I, think, I think it's very important for us as we look to the future. I think humility is going to be something that is going to need to mark the lives of those who are living successfully uh, in the future. I'm hardly alone in suggesting this. Uh, Jim Collins, the management writer, has said that humility is one of the characteristics of great organizations, and that humility is one of the characteristics of great leaders. And uh, a while back, Harvard Business Review said that 40% of CEOs have a major stumble in their first 18 months, not because they lack experience, not because they lack competence, but because of pride, and it brings them down. And, uh, of course, the Bible makes this point uh, in big capital letters. Jesus, who is God, <laughs> is, is, is one who shows up in the backwaters of the Roman Empire as a baby without power. And he makes it clear that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And he is our model. And it's not just that we see this with Jesus. Um, throughout Scripture, this topic keeps coming up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes and says, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes and says, have nothing to do with, with vanity or, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Uh, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed as God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he humbled himself. And uh, Paul also writes in, in Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, and humility. Right? And then uh, James will say, in essence, the same thing. James 3.13, Who is wise among you? Let him prove it by living a good life. And what is a good life? Uh, a good life is one done with deeds of humility. I could go on, there are so many different places in Scripture that advocate humility, and it just, 
It's just worth pausing to try and imagine what the world would look like today if everybody thought that everyone else was more important than they were. Right? So the question that is before us is, do we have a right perspective of who we are? Do you have a right understanding of who you are? That's what we are called to. That's what we desperately need. And so uh, the topic of humility comes up in Daniel, not as a sort of chapter and verse where we're told, be humble. It comes up in Daniel by way of uh, contrast. So on the one hand, we have Daniel, who is humble, who is uh, who is sort of self-effacing. In Daniel chapter 2, after he, he is the one that saves the day, he is the one that comes up with what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was, and then he is the one that comes up with the interpretation. When, when Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to pour accolades and honor on him, Daniel says, stop, I'm not smarter than all the rest of your counselors. God told me this. This is about God. This is not about me. And then in Daniel chapter 9, we have, a, uh, we have a prayer of confession that Daniel prays. And we're going to pray that corporately in a bit as we prepare for communion. But it's just worth uh, noting. Again, Daniel is noteworthy because other than Jesus, he is, he is the only major character in Scripture about whom we don't know what their sin was. Right? So we know that Abraham lied about uh, uh, his relationship with Sarah's wife and sort of throws her under the bus and that Moses blows a gasket and kills a man and that David's got a number of different issues, adultery and, and guilty of murder. And we can just go down the list, right? Everybody sort of trips over something. And the Bible doesn't suggest otherwise. The Bible doesn't say that there were these high, holy, righteous people, men and women who were just perfect No, you're always seeing the shadow. You're always seeing the soft belly. You're always seeing the underside. You're always seeing their sin, and they don't hide that. But with Daniel, we don't have any record of that. And yet, in Daniel chapter 9, there is this prayer of confession that he prays, and he sort of owns sin. He owns the sin of, uh, of his people. And in contrast to Daniel... We have, a couple, uh, we have a couple Babylonian leaders who come across as, as sort of uh, self-important idiots. And uh, one of them is Nebuchadnezzar, and the other one is his son, Belshazzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, I've been talking about, he's the guy that leads Babylon to overthrow the Assyrians, and he, he positions Babel, Babylon and the Babylonians to be the world power at that time. And it's a remar- he builds a remarkable empire. So Babylon is noted both for its beauty. So one of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the hanging gardens in Babylon. So you've got, you've got uh, some aesthetic value, some artistic, some appreciation of beauty. You've got that part of Babylon. But then you also have got uh, this military might so the, the, the outer wall, there were two walls surrounding it, protecting it. The outer wall is 17 miles in circumference, wide enough on the top 
for chariots to pass side by side because they just have always got chariots doing patrols around this 17 miles. Inside that wall was another wall that was 150 feet thick. <laughs> so you've, so Nebuchadnezzar sleeps well at night, right? I mean, he's got, he's got all the, the security in place. He's defeated his enemies, and he's got this great compound. And so uh, he sort of has that attitude, right? I mean, he's done it. Uh, I, a couple years ago, I got a call from a friend who was who invited me to come uh, down to Austin. He's a broker, and one of his uh, clients was uh, at a company that was just going gangbusters. And he was, uh, he was making, this client was making uh, upwards of a million dollars a week. I, I didn't know that because his broker told me. I knew that because this guy told me. And uh, he, he was recruiting, always recruiting people into his company. And so... Um, my friend said, he's given me two passes. So everybody that joins his company, he does a one-day, uh, every month he does a one-day training. This is my philosophy of life. This is how I live my life. This is my strategy for, you know, being successful. And he said, you know, I think it'd be interesting, and if you want to go, yeah, I can get you in. So I decided to go. And it was interesting, fascinating. This guy eventually would write a book, and it became a New York Times best-selling book. Um, so there were some interesting things that he was saying, but after the first break, uh, my friend says, what do you think? And I said, I'm learning stuff, but this guy has all the humility of a guy who's making a million dollars a week, right? I mean, it's, it's, he's convinced that he's right about everything. I'm less convinced. Nebuchadnezzar had that attitude, and it shows up um, he has, a, he has a second dream that Daniel interprets, and, and Daniel basically says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this dream weren't about you, but you've got pride issues, and God is going to humble you. And uh, I, you, you, please turn, repent. You've got to go a different direction. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't, and it says, um, chapter 4, verse 28, uh, then all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so he has this dream, Daniel warns him, he doesn't turn. 12 months later, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty powers as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Right. So he's looking over this empire that he has conquered and built, and he says, isn't this mighty, glorious Babylon and my palace, which I built for my glory, isn't this great? And uh, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes leave of his sanity for seven years and lives uh, essentially like a cow uh, out in the field. So medical, modern medical psychiatry has a term for this, bone thropy. 
It's a, it's, a, it's a malady, it's an illness. There's a couple famous case studies of people who have this. They think they're a cow, they think they're a horse, they think, they think they're a goat, and they live outside and want to, you know, hang out with the goats and eat grass. So for seven years, this was his fate uh, before he finally humbles himself and uh, turns. So after he passes away, his son, Belshazzar, becomes the king. And while, while Nebuchadnezzar was given a month or given a year warning to be told he has to deal with his pride, Belshazzar basically loses everything the first night. So he becomes the king, and uh, on that day, uh, he throws a huge party. Now, a thousand people have been invited. Meanwhile, the Persians have laid siege to Babylon. And so the king should be attending to this imminent military crisis. But whether he's clueless or whether he just uh, thinks, no, the, the walls will hold, he throws a huge party. And after the party has been going on for some time, he sends some of his servants into the sort of the, the treasury to get out of the treasury the, the gold and silver that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem when they captured Jerusalem. And they bring it back for everybody to sort of have fun and drink, you know, wine out of the, the sacred goblets that the Jews had had in the temple. And uh, on that, at that moment, shortly after that happens, um, uh, Belshazzar had tasted the wine. And then it says, immediately, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, immediately the fingers of a man's hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand and the king saw it and his uh, the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and he and basically no one can read what is written so they're having the big party and all of a sudden a hand not a body but a hand appears and writes on the wall and it writes uh in in uh arabic or aramaic it writes uh mene mene tekel pasim and nobody knows how to translate that and eventually um uh, Belshazzar's mother will show up and say, you know, your father had this godly wise Jew that would give him counsel when he was uh, confused. You ought to go to Daniel. So Daniel shows up and says, uh, and, and Belshazzar promises him all kinds of golden power and other things. He goes, keep all that. I can tell you, I, I can read this for you. Basically it says, uh, numbered, numbered, weighed and measured. You have been found. You have been tried by God and uh, found wanting, and you will die tonight. And uh, the, per- the Persians overthrow uh, Babylon, and uh, the king, Belshazzar, is killed. So what we have here is a contrast, right? We're not told that we're supposed to be humble, but we have a contrast between Daniel, who is wise and godly and humble, and, and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, who are sort of clueless flakes about whom everything uh, unfolds. And so uh, I just want us uh, to stop and think about what this means. Um, I, I want us to stop and, and ask ourselves again, do I have a right understanding of myself? Do I, do I understand my gifts and abilities? Do I understand my, my liabilities? Do I see myself in any way that is accurate? 
if you, if you just go to the dictionary to look up humility, you get a definition like the quality of being humble, which doesn't necessarily help. There are dictionaries that go a little bit further than that. The Cambridge Dictionary uh, defined humility as feeling, is the feeling or attitude that you have no special importance that makes you better. It's a lack of pride. Okay, maybe that's a little bit better. I, I prefer that the, the biblical understanding of humility is that you have an accurate understanding of who you are, right? That, that you are grounded in reality. So this means a couple things that I think we, we have to process. Uh, for instance, it does not mean that we need to hide our talents or claim to be worse than we are, right? C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of saying if someone is good uh, in the card game of bridge and they're asked, are you good at bridge? Uh, if they say no, trying to be humble, they're actually just being dishonest. Right? So, yeah, yeah, I've played a lot of cards. So if you have gifts and abilities, if you have gifts and abilities that, that God has given you or that you have worked hard to, to develop, it would be, it would be uh, not humble to say, no, I'm, I'm bad. I, I don't have, uh, I don't, I'm not musical. I, you know. No, well, you are. So we need an accurate understanding of ourselves. It's not saying that we're worse than we are. Um, it does not mean that we can't take pleasures in being affirmed. Right? We, we shouldn't worry about the child who delights in the praises of a teacher or their parent. Right? That, that would suggest that they have a, sort of a right understanding of themselves. The, the, the pride manifests itself when they don't care what other people think of themselves, think of them. Uh, we will be told, hopefully, well done, good and faithful servant. It won't be, it won't be wrong to delight in the, in the compliment, in that, in, in that recognition that would come from God. Humility does not mean um, that we cannot be proud of a son or a daughter who does something well. Right? Who excels in a school play or in a sporting event. And you can't say, I'm proud of you. That's not a sin. To, to have that kind of attitude. Any, anytime we, we, we delight in, the, in, in someone else doing well, that's certainly a step in the right direction. That's the direction we should be leaning. Being humble does not mean that we have low self-esteem. It does not mean that we cannot have strong opinions. It does not mean that we are... Uh, we should be a doormat. It doesn't mean that we should dislike ourselves. Okay. Loving yourself and hating yourself are not opposites. They're really sort of just derivations of the same theme. You're obsessed with yourself. The goal is not to hate ourselves. The goal is to sort of forget about ourselves. And it's to be other-focused. We have a, Luther would say, that we are curved inward. We're curved in upon ourselves. And instead of being sort of self referential, we should be God-referential, right? We should, we should be orbiting. Our lives should be centered around God, not around ourself. Humility is not self-abasement or low self-esteem as much as it is an ability to live as close to the truth as possible, to the truth about ourselves, to the truth about others, and to the truth about the world around us. So, as I said, we're going to pray this, uh, this prayer that, uh, that is given to us by, uh, by Daniel. But I just want to, a few other ideas to hold on to as we prepare to go to communion and to this prayer. Um, 
it's worth noting that the whole idea of humility radically changed with Jesus. Prior to Jesus, what was elevated and esteemed by the Greeks and the Romans was honor, right? Not humility. It was honor. You wanted to protect your honor. And suddenly, there's this radical transformation. And uh, about 20 years ago, a group of historians, ancient historians, secular ancient historians, were given a project to figure out how... Why did humility change? Why did the ancient world going, go from esteeming honor to suddenly esteeming humility? <laughs> and and, and the, the consensus was, it's all about this person, Jesus. He's the one who changed it. And it was not, they, they felt, not Jesus' teaching about humility. It was the fact that Jesus was recognized as being the greatest person, and he was humble. Right, so he, he lived better than everyone else, but he lived simply and he served. And there wasn't any way to reconcile Jesus' life with this idea of honor and privilege. <laughs> and so the idea of humility switched. Now, not everyone has followed Jesus down this path. So famously, you have philosophers like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German uh, nihilist, who says... Uh, you know, the idea of humility is, is wrong. We all want to be, we want to be the, the ubermensch. We want to be the superman, right? We want to be the prevailing. We want to have power. That's all that matters. Uh, Ayn Rand, I, I love Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead. I've read them, but, but you got to understand the philosophy behind uh, Ayn Rand. She does not like humility at all, uh, right? And she writes a book called The Virtue of Selfishness, right? So it's about yourself. You want to be self-promoting. So there are people who, who play this down, but most people would say Jesus radically changed our understanding of humility. It's also important to recognize theologically that uh, many would say pride is the first sin, or it's the original sin, or it's the basis for the other sins. Not all theologians would, would head down this path, but um, uh, Gregory the Great, one of the, one of the bishops of Rome, very famously in the Middle Ages, tweaked this list of eight evil thoughts uh, that were recognized as the, as the eight pathways that led to all the other sins. And Gregory the Great took that list and he changed it, giving us the list of the seven deadly sins. And he changed it from eight to seven by taking pride out. And he said, pride comes before the other seven. It's at the root of, of all of them. So Today, if you see a list of the seven deadly sins, they're not found in the Bible. It's a, it's a list that sort of developed out of the, the Middle Eastern efforts or the Middle Ages efforts to try and, uh, and move forward and become godly and, the, and those that were going out into the desert to try and um, get away from, from temptation discovered <laughs> that all the, all the evil resided in their heart. They couldn't get away from sin when they went into the desert. And so this, this whole idea of the seven deadly sins developed out of that. If you see the list, it's fluid over the years, but pride is back on it. But most people recognize that pride is the first. Some people would take it off that list and say it even precedes the other seven sins. Uh, look, there, there are more things that could, be, that could be said about pride and humility. Here's the big takeaway. Uh, it is 
profoundly dangerous. We have to understand. If we don't see ourselves accurately, we don't really understand what we're up against. If we are self-deluded, we don't understand our desperate need for the redemption that comes through Jesus. And and so we have to have a right uh, understanding of ourselves. Pride is deadly, and uh, we have to fight it. And so uh, I would suggest that one of the ways that we fight it is that we humble ourselves. So the Bible doesn't tell us to pray for humility. It says humble yourself. So find something you think you're too good to do. Find something a previous version of you would think you were too good to do, and go do it. Serve. Go to the end of the line, right? I mean, think radically differently about your social status and about what that would look like. We are instructed to humble ourselves. And by the way, I back up from people who pray for humility. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, do not go down that path, right? Don't, don't ask God to help you on this. Just do it yourself. Humble yourself. A second thing would be focus on God. To the extent that we are focusing on him, to the extent that we get a a, a fuller picture of who God is and his power and might and majesty and glory, and I I suggested a couple weeks ago, get a picture from the Hubble spacecraft of the cosmos and remind yourself God spoke this into existence. To the extent that we see God, Right, then, then we are going to be, naturally we're going to worship and we are going to confess. So we see this in Isaiah 6 where, where Isaiah says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted and the train of the robe filled the, ste- filled the temple. Right? And, the, and the first thing that Isaiah does when he, is, when he gets a glimpse of God is he says, woe is me, right? For holy, the angels are saying, holy, 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 worship is going on. But he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. And I have seen God. So one of the things that, that will help us be humble is a right understanding of God, which leads to an understanding of our brokenness and our sin, which leads to confession. And so that's what we're going to do corporately. Uh, Christianity is not that if you try hard and do certain religious things and don't do certain other things— that you will earn God's favor. Okay, that's, that is the opposite, the opposite of the Christian faith. The Christian faith doesn't say, we need to reach up, we need to be good. The Christian faith says, we are broken, profoundly curved inward, incapable of doing what needs to be done. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. God reaches down. The gospel tells us that we are, we, are, we are profoundly worse than we dared imagine and in more trouble than we dared comprehend. But God's love and mercy is, is even greater than our sin. And so we can find in Christ redemption and forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus does not get mad at sinners who ask for help. Jesus gets mad at people who think they don't need help. Jesus gets mad at people who think they're doing quite well. Thank you very much. 
So we want to confess our sins. And to that end, I invite you to stand now. I've taken the... um, I have taken the the confession of Daniel found in Daniel chapter 9, changed it just a little bit, taken out the references to Babylon and other things, brought it into the 21st century, uh, and we're going to pray this corporately as we prepare to come to communion. So join with me now as we pray the prayer of Daniel 9. Can you pull that up, please? O great and majestic God, You never waver in your commitments, never give up on those who love, yet we have sinned in every way imaginable. We've done evil things, rebelled, dodged, and taken detours around your clearly marked paths. We've turned a deaf ear to your instruction. We are guilty, broken, vain, and selfish. Compassion is our only hope the compassion of you, the master, our God. We acknowledge that because of our rebellion, we forfeited our rights. We paid no attention to you when you told us how to live. We defied your instructions and did what we pleased. So listen, God, to this determined prayer of your people. Have mercy on us, act out of who you are, not out of what we are. Hear our prayers for mercy. You are our last and only hope. Master, listen to us. Master, forgive us.